Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. I've been thinking this week about how there are all kinds of uh, books and films and TV shows that would fall into the category of being dystopian, but nothing that is utopian. Uh, A few weeks ago, the latest Hunger Games film came out. It's a dystopia and, you know, things go on. My son uh, just finished his first semester of high school. He has already been assigned and allegedly read uh, Fahrenheit 451, another dystopian novel. A trailer was released this week imagining the not-too-distant future of the United States descending into civil war. Again, dystopia. We have all of these examples of books, movies, TV shows that show a world that has gone bad, that show us a future that is not fun. But I was trying to think of something. I was trying to rack my brain and see if I could come up with one movie, film, or TV show that that gave us a picture of a utopia of a good world, of a world where everything is fine and everything is good and there's no dark underbelly to anything in the movie or the book. And you know what? I could not think of a single one. There are so many examples of how we imagine the world going wrong and so few examples of us imagining the world going right. And so I started to ask myself the question, why is that? Why is it that our imagination is cast towards things going wrong and not a beautiful picture of the future? And I think that I came up with a practical answer and an uncomfortable answer. So the practical answer is there's not a lot of conflict in paradise. If you write a story about paradise, there's not much room for conflict, which doesn't make for a very good movie. So I think practically, you know, it just doesn't, isn't a good plot device. But I think the uncomfortable answer to this question is that we're so filled with cynicism and dissatisfaction that we feel doomed to believe that nothing will ever get better, that only pain and suffering await us as the future comes. And as we look around the world, as we look at everything going on around us, that is kind of an understandable thing. The world does not seem to be getting better. The world does not seem to be improving in any way. I mean, think about every technology that has come along in the past 25 years. They all promised that it'd make the world a better place. And which one of them genuinely has? Maybe Maybe Dyson vacuum cleaners. Those things are pretty legit. (laughs) But like everything else has been a trade-off of good and bad. I mean, politicians promise to fix things and then most of them fail on delivering. And this isn't just a problem where Americans are feeling disenchanted with politics. This is around the world. Modern society has promised us that things would get better. And yet we find ourselves in the midst of an epidemic of mental health. What's going on? Where is the one of these things is not like the other? We look at the world around us and just can't imagine a path from where we sit now and where the world is now to something that looks like paradise. And that's why the Christian idea of the future is so radical. The Bible teaches that we are headed for 
a utopia. The trajectory of sin and sadness and brokenness are going to be done away with. Jesus' resurrection broke the power of death. The cross of Jesus cancels the power of sin. And one day, God is going to bring the victory of Jesus over sin and death to bear on every aspect of this world. He's going to undo all the wrongs. He's going to restore us to a state of perfection and connection with him as Christians. Even as Christians, this is almost too hard to believe. I mean, we, we, we do not have the moral and spiritual imagination oftentimes to picture a world where this happens. And yet this version of a perfected world isn't meant to make us careless or apathetic, but rather it is meant to encourage us as Christians to faithfulness, to endurance, and to hope. And so if you are able, I'd ask that you stand. I'm going to read the first portion of Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22. So if you're able, uh, please stand with me as I read God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kind of fruit yielding eat its fruit each month. Then the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. If you were with us in the spring, you may remember as we looked at some of the letters that John wrote as part of the book of Revelation, that this uh, letter that John writes that we call Revelation is meant to be a comfort to Christians who were suffering under persecution in Asia Minor. It's meant to be a comfort to those who are going through 
hard times. And if you've ever talked to me about the meaning of the book of Revelation, one of the things that you'll find to get that it's really easy to get me really wound up on is that this book is not about telling us what technology is going to look like in the future and telling us exactly what the script of the last six weeks of mankind will look like. That's not the intent of this book because that would make no sense to the 2,000 years of Christians that come before whenever it ends. Rather, this book is written in language that every era, every generation of Christians is able to find their story in and understand. So we're all meant to be comforted by this book. And this is done through the use of imagery over and over again. And John in the book of Revelation gives a masterclass of taking elements of the story of the Bible from the whole sweep of the Bible and weaving them together into a bright and beautiful cloth. And so that's what he does here as he describes our future. He picks up themes from the Bible and he shows us how those themes have their end. And the first one is the theme of a wedding. As John sees the new world coming into being, he sees Jerusalem descending as a bride prepared for their wedding. And this is bringing together the, the idea throughout the whole Bible that is used as God as a groom and his people as a bride. You see this in the metaphors of Ruth, Ruth and Song of Solomon. You see this in several of the parables of Jesus. God helps us see our relationship to him through this lens. But by the way, um, it's kind of a cool parallel uh, that last week we saw how Paul um, called all Christians the sons of God uh, because of the legal ramifications in Roman courts for that. Uh, and this week he calls all Christians the bride of Christ. It's just an interesting parallel between those two things. But the metaphor of a family, of that, that wedding metaphor is pretty easy to grasp because all of us know how great weddings can be. One of the greatest joys of my job is getting to participate in weddings. I've been with many of you at your weddings. And what's not to love? Good food, good drinks, good friends. The joy of a wedding can't be beat. It's got dancing. It's got toasting. It's got the good, happy kind of tears. You can almost get anyone talking by asking them about great weddings that they've been to or about asking them if they've ever been to a train wreck of a wedding. Either way, you will not have a dull conversation asking those two questions. And this isn't some sort of invention of the modern not.com industrial complex. In, in Western history, the wedding developed as an expression of Christians showing this metaphor of the beauty that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. We feast at weddings because in the new heavens and the new earth, we will feast together with Christ. We dance at wedding because the joy of the new heavens and the new earth will fill us so much that we will dance. We share promises of enduring covenant love at weddings because it's a mirror of the unbreaking covenant love that God shows up. When you go to a wedding, it's metaphors about Jesus all the way down. And I want to encourage you with, with just one aspect of that um, that's particular to me. I have, a, I have a funny habit at weddings, which is this. 
Whenever uh, I ask the congregation to stand and the bride begins to make her way down the aisle, if you were to sneak a peek at me in that moment, you will find that I am not typically looking at the bride. I'm looking at the groom. Because there is nothing like the joy that is seen on a groom's face when his bride starts walking down the aisle. I, I oftentimes uh, will make a, a little bet with Angie on, on whether or not the groom will shed a tear of joy in that moment. And I always take the shed a tear bet because I'm a hopeless romantic and it is such a beautiful thing to see. Why do I bring that up? Church, because right now, no matter how bad your week has been, no matter how disappointing this year has been for you, no matter what moral failures you've got rattling around in there, no matter what, the way that Jesus looks at you right now is the way that a groom looks at his bride on the wedding day. That joy, that admiration, that overflowing love, that is the way that Jesus looks and perceives you. And he has prepared a home for us, which we will one day live in together, a home fully appointed like a couple's home brimming with all of the shower gifts and new dishes that they have. You, you know, there's something unique about, about the honeymoon phase of our lives, and it's not just the joy that that brings, but it's one of the last times we will all have a full set of silverware. I was counting, and somehow we're down to three teaspoons in our entire house. I don't know where they went. They're gone. But this is the picture of this house full of the finest things that Jesus has for us forever together, which is exactly what John's next point is. In the middle of this wedding, as it's progressing, a loud voice comes from the throne of God and says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Just like the theme of the great wedding weaves its way throughout the Bible, this theme of God dwelling with his people runs through the whole of scripture as well. We see Adam and Eve in the garden. What do we see? We see them dwelling with God, that God is with them, walking with them. That is what they lost that was so precious when they were kicked out of the garden. And then we see God restores that, gives them a picture of that in a new metaphorical way. He says to the people of Israel, we're going to have a tabernacle. It's going to be a tent and it's going to be the symbol that I am with you. And so all you have to do is look to the center of the camp where this tent will be and you'll know I'm with you. And then when God settles down, he settles down into Jerusalem where they build a temple so that they understand that God is with them. And then John, the same person who wrote Revelation that we're reading now, tried to reach for something to describe what it was like when Jesus came to this world. And what did he say? He said, the word it became flesh and tabernacled among us. He set up his tent in our neighborhood. And all of this is just the shadow of what John is pointing to now in Revelation 21 and 22. God is together with his people, comforting them. In fact, uh, John tells the story again in chapter 22 by saying that we will see God's 
face, which is something that the rest of the Bible says is explicitly no go, is explicitly not a thing that happens. When, when, when Moses, the friend of God, who used to talk to God as a man does his friend, the Bible says, when he would talk with God, he had to wear something over his face. He could not see God face to face. But when God makes all things new, we will see God face to face. Just like Adam and Eve walked in the garden with him, so will we. We will feast with him. We will eat with him. And this idea is something that we sing a lot about at Christmas. Think about how many of our Christmas songs are based around the idea or the, the name of Jesus as Emmanuel. I mean, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is an all-time Christmas banger. It's maybe one of the best hymns in the Western catalog of all hymns. It's amazing. And the whole idea of Emmanuel is that God is with us, not just on our side, not just in our corner. God has chosen in Jesus to dwell among his people, to take on flesh. He knows the struggles that we go through because he went through them. God loves us so much that he became like us so that he might restore us to the privilege and joy of being with him. We participate in that. We partake in that every time we take communion together. One more thing that I just want to point out about uh, this idea of God being with us. Um, there's a very strange uh, verse that I read in chapter 22. Uh, it's, the, it's verse five, and it talks about there being no more night, and you won't need a lamp, and you won't need a light, because God will be your light. And it, he says, it's because the Lord God will be your light. And First, that just sounds like the kind of metaphorical language that Revelation is all about. But I read something this week that I thought was incredibly fascinating, incredibly helpful. Um, New Testament scholar Bill Mount said that if you try to translate the Lord God will be their light from Greek back into Hebrew, it would read like this. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. This is a Greek version of the ancient Hebrew blessing. The blessing of God's being with us is not just that he is with us, but he is making his face shine upon us. We are receiving his infinite blessing through his presence. And so in the midst of the beauty of these wedding images and God dwelling with us, there is a little bit of a downer. God begins to list out all the evildoers that he is going to send to the lake, send to the lake burning with fire. It kind of seems like a bitter interruption to the good news of the new heavens and the new earth. But this is actually meant as a comfort as well. Remember, I said that this book was written to people who are experiencing persecution and exploitation. And they got to hear that God will set all things right, that justice absolutely will be done. God is protecting his people from harm. Either we will be reconciled by the blood of Christ on this day, or we will see God protecting us from those who harmed us. If you've been hurt or harmed by another person in this world, God sees you. God knows that. God understands that. And he will wipe away every single one of those tears because the world that is to come is free from not only evil, but evildoers. Pure and clear as crystal, like the water from the most beautiful stream, this world will come to those who are asking for God to give them the water 
of life. And that river, that river that the water of life comes from points us to the last thread that John shows us in this passage. So much of the imagery that, it, that I read to you today is imagery that is drawn from Genesis chapters one and two. The very, very beginning, Eden. Eden means delight. And so just as Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight, so we will live in the city of Eden, the city of delights. And just like Eden had a river that ran through the middle of it, so too does the city. And there in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. And what do we read here in the city? Do we find again? It's the tree of life. And just like God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, so too will we walk with Jesus in the city of Eden. This is nothing short of the undoing of every single aspect of the curse of sin on the planet itself. Nature will be restored. It's interesting that we also sing about this at Christmas. Um, I'm telling you guys, Christmas songs, Advent songs are the best. Uh, listen to the third verse of Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. The new heavens and the new earth are the artistic create creativity of God bursting into reality. Like a phoenix rising from the ashes, God cleanses the world with fire to purify and renew it. Just like the tomb was an egg that was cracked open by the resurrection of Jesus, bringing new life into the world, so too one day will the whole earth be renewed. And so the image that we have of heaven, the image that most of us think of when we think of heaven is like clouds and harps and, and century-long worship services. And for some people, that sounds amazing. But for some of us, that sounds like, I wonder if we'll have games on our phones or magazines. But the problem is, is that is not the image of heaven that the Bible gives. That's the image that, that Hallmark created to sell more cherub figurines. That's not the image of the Bible. The Bible says, no, that this is Eden restored, that this is Eden renewed. And so if that's true, that means that we will have jobs, but labor will be a joy for us. If the end of the Bible points us back to the beginning of the Bible, that means that we will have relationships, but there won't be even a hint of strife. We will melt down every assault rifle and turn them into shovels and hoes, just like the prophet Isaiah said, and we will work in the new garden. The silver and gold coins will be recast into forks and knives that will set the table as we bring the produce of that garden to the chef. You can probably find me back there in the kitchen. All of us will have roles that we have been created for. Our creativity and our labor will reflect the creativity and labor of our God. We will join with the creator and making beauty in the world around us. That's our hope. Not century-long worship services, but living and creating together with the Creator in a world where sin and sorrow are not part of the vocabulary. And all of this begins in the first coming of Jesus. While in, this was in process in the mind of God since all eternity passed, He began bringing it into being with the birth of Jesus. And Jesus shows us the way that we can begin to live as citizens of this future world here and now. 
And it's by the way that he came into this world, not by a show of strength, not by a grasp of power, but of humility and service. The way to see the world that is to come burst into the reality of the world that we live in here in St. Petersburg right now isn't by grasping for power because Jesus didn't do that. Rather, he laid down his life for others. He served others and cared for them. So as we look forward to all that God is going to do in new creation, let's follow him in humble service to those who are around us. Just like he's given us the gifts of new life, of hope of a bright future, let's be agents of hope and peace in our schools and in our neighborhoods, our offices and our home. Let's wage peace and the sure and certain hope that peace is going to come. Let's pray.